This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from the frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Okay, hello. Welcome back to The Real Thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence. Back again for another episode of The Real Thing. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is a film society in Bergen, Norway. And this podcast acts as an extension of the film society's program, where we talk about the films included in said program, why they're amazing, why they were chosen, and why you should go see them or watch them if you can. Today is a very exciting day for sure, because this is the first film that I have ever chosen uh for the program so i'm gonna be my own guest today i guess it's just gonna be me uh we have a lot of stuff to talk about there's a lot of stuff to talk about the film in particular but also around the film there's a lot of historical information and fallout almost from the film as well so it's gonna be a pretty exciting episode so strap in and let's get going but before we start Let's start with some recommendations that I chose specifically for this film. So the recommendations that I've chosen today are films that change aspect ratio uh, as a way to further the plot or a way the aspect ratio is used in the storytelling of the film. So, and also series, I've included one series in this list as well. So I'll just list them off. Uh, firstly, I was gonna say 500 Days of Summer is a f- is a film that uses aspect ratio to convey basically different states of delirium of the main character uh, in his delusion that this person is Summer is madly in love with him. Uh, I think this is a fantastic romantic comedy. It is super heartbreaking and the dialogue is amazing and obviously as I mentioned the way that it's shot is very cool and it changes throughout the film kind of based on how the main character is feeling played by Justin Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel who plays Summer she plays just this total cool character who in my opinion does absolutely nothing wrong in the entire film but all the same really great film and one that incorporates this changing aspect ratio. Secondly, the movie Enchanted, the Disney film, starring Amy Adams and Patrick Dempsey and Susan Sarandon. Ooh, this film is so good. This film changes from animated to real life and also incorporates different aspect ratios throughout each of these sections. Um as a device to tell the story and also how Amy Adams' character changes too as she understands the world different the longer that she spends in the real world. 
This film is so good and the music is incredible and I love Amy Adams incredibly much. I think that she is the actress of our time and yeah, brilliant film. Uh, what else? Lastly, I was going to go for a TV series, which I think is absolutely slept on by absolutely everyone. It is an Amazon Prime series called Homecoming. And it stars Julia Roberts in the lead role. I watched this show pretty much when it came out in 2018. And it is telling a story in the present and in the past. And this is detailed by, well, firstly, by Julia Roberts's crazy wigs uh, that she wears between the past and the present. And also that the aspect ratio between past and present is different. They use this constrained shorter uh, aspect ratio in the present because Julia Roberts' character remembers nothing of her past. So we are kind of learning of her past as she's learning about it at the same time because she's completely forgotten. But the premise of the show is that she plays this character called Heidi Bergman, who was a social worker at the Homecoming Transitional Support Centre. The series is called Homecoming, which is a live-in facility run by the Geist Group, the facility ostensibly helped soldiers transition to civilian life. And there were four years later, Bergman has started a new life working as a waitress, but she cannot remember her time at homecoming. After a US Department of Defense auditor inquires as to why she left homecoming, Bergman comes to realize that she had been uh, misled about the true purpose of the facility. And it's so cool. And it's like, it. Fe- I remember thinking that it was like kind of scary because you're following her character and she has literally no idea what's going on and her little information that she has in the present day like makes you feel the anxiety that she feels through this constrained aspect ratio and ooh, like i won't give too much away but the moment that she remembers is so cool oh my god please go watch it if you can homecoming amazon prime series I didn't watch season two because I didn't want to because it looked bad. But season one, I can guarantee, is definitely worth the watch. Judah Roberts is great. It stars Sissy Spacek, I think. Um, Bobby Cannavale, Stephen James, Shay Wiggum, and Alex Kopowski. And yeah, it's so good. The This season two has a very good uh, cast as well. Janelle Monae, Chris Cooper, and John Cusack, and Hong Chow, who was briefly in season one as well. But uh, no, season one, absolutely go for it. Great season, great use of aspect ratio. Check it out. So today we are talking about the 2016 Feng Xiaogang directed I Am Not Madame Bovary. Or in its original Chinese title, Wo Bushi Pan Jin Liang. There's a lot to talk about at this film, but I maybe I can talk about when I first watched this film. Uh, I first watched this film, uh, and I, f- I should actually firstly say that this is a beautiful film to watch. There is no scene that is not deliberately perfect, and the way the color is used in this film is just 
every shot feels so deliberate, so purposeful, and it's just an absolute pleasure to watch. However, the first time I did not see it in the cinema, I saw it when I was flying to Gambia in in 2017, and I watched it on my iPad. So, not exactly how it was intended to be watched, but I remember thinking even then that it was beautiful and it has this incredibly unique take that uh, Feng Xiaogang incorporates into the film is that most of the film is constrained to a completely circular aspect ratio. This is done for a number of reasons. It's firstly done to kind of throw back to the Song Dynasty of China in which usually art being created in, the, in this time was sort of constrained to these circular things as if you were looking through a window, which is often how the art is depicted. But secondly, this film is basically about the isolation of a woman who has been written off by the world. From where she lives in rural China to her circumstance using this circular aspect ratio really makes you feel how tight and alone basically that she feels through the majority of the film her travels take her to the city to beijing uh and then we see a shift actually and the aspect ratio goes from circle to square because the world kind of gets bigger and it also adapts many new colors representing Beijing is kind of like golden and green and red, these kind of authoritative colors. Whereas in the, in the countryside, when we have the circle aspect ratio, there's a lot of greens and grays and blues and yellows. So it's very different, very exciting. But the basic plot of this film, I will go through a synopsis of. So the main character who is played by legendary Fan Bingbing is called Li Zhuilian and she is a woman who has divorced her husband in order to sidestep a Chinese law which states that married couples can only own one property. In order to purchase another property, Li and her husband concoct a plan to divorce so that they can buy a second property. However, in the process of this, her now ex-husband marries another woman and denies ever agreeing to such a deal with Li. To further outrage and distance himself, he accuses accuses Lee of sleeping with other men uh, and basically being a sex worker and scorns her as Pan Jindian or Madame Bovary, which I'll get to in a second. She is outraged by this, obviously, and goes to local authorities to notify the divorce so that she can legitimately divorce her husband. The authorities are very puzzled by this as Lee is already divorced, so it's very confusing and no one really understands why she wants to do it. She explains her principled approach first to the local police that she and her husband agreed to divorce under the guise of buying property, but now she wishes to undertake undertake this legitimate divorce and she crusades for her cause, escalating her issue through each bureaucratic step in the system from local police to local judiciary to local magistrate, then to the provincial authorities. Well, a lot of things happen to this woman during her journey. She tries to hire her friends as hitmen she is accused by her ex-husband of fooling around with other men. She is arrested and sent to a re-education camp. She is falsely led into an intimate relationship with a man in an effort by local authorities of ceasing her crusade. And she goes all the way to Beijing to protest her principled stance on nullifying her divorce. 
During her persistent crusade, her ex-husband dies, leading Lee to lament over her now inability to seek retribution for her ex-husband's illicit affair and branding her a sex worker. The movie concludes with Lee settling alone in Beijing, running a noodle restaurant where she encounters one of the local officials who impeded her during her early crusade. So the film takes over about 10 years, I believe. She recounts her tale with the official who was fired as a result of her crusade and reveals that she initially divorced not to buy a new property, but so that they could have two children. Lee was pregnant at the time of the divorce, and a divorce would mean that she and her ex could remarry and have another child. However, during this and her crusade, she had a miscarriage and lost the baby. The movie concludes with Lee accepting her fate and life for what it is and let go of her angst and hate. So it's quite the crusade. It follows, it's not much uh, else is sort of discussed in the film, which I've heard be sort of a criticism for the film, which is not necessarily something I agree with. She's just, because the criticisms that I've heard is that it doesn't explore so much the marriage of Lee and her husband but I don't necessarily think that that is such a problem because the film is about her trying to prove her name like this is the present and this is happening now and she has this insurmountable battle to get through basically all on her own so I think it kind of makes sense that so much of the film would be taken up by this but it's so so good and Fan Bingbing is incredible as the lead but before we talk about the director and before we talk about some of the other stuff surrounding the film I wanted to talk about the film's title so in English I am not Madame Bovary refers to the literary character Madame Bovary who is kind of the sex crazed woman in the 19th century i suppose it's a french book originally i think and that's kind of the closest literary character that the translators could kind of come up with i guess because i don't necessarily think that madame bovary has quite the same impact as referring to pan jinlian which is the original chinese version of an adulteress so Pan Jinlian is perhaps the most famous of all female villains in Chinese literature because of her two cardinal sins she's committed, adultery and the murder of her husband. Her characterization in the two novels The Water Margin from the 14th century and The Golden Lotus in the 16th century firmly established her as a sex maniac who brought the destruction of herself and the men around her. So essentially the story is she is married to a man who goes and fights a tiger I think and whilst he's away she starts to have an affair with someone else and then they plot to kill her husband which they then do this is in the original text at least her now dead husband's brother finds out that he's done this she's done this and he kills Panjinian and her new lover but it seems like this has much of a larger weight and more of a knowledge in kind of like Chinese literary information known to the general public I feel otherwise they wouldn't have gone for this name because Pan Jinlian is what is used to essentially be a scarlet letter to women who maybe are unfaithful however it wasn't until 
the 20th century that Pan Jinlian receives slightly more sympathetic treatment in the hands of playwrights and novelists. In one short play, Pan Jinlian from 928, for example, she is depicted as a rebel against traditional morality in her search for love and sexual freedom, a character very much in tune with the ethos of the time. Wei Minglun's new Sichuan opera, which came out in some recent years, I believe, is the latest attempt to re-examine the case of this notorious femme fatale from the perspective of the 1980s. So she's like this evolving character that's been used throughout Chinese literary history, which is very interesting, and that it can have such a way, at least in this film, that her credibility is completely lost in a way, because her husband said this, and kind of in the order of the situation, the husband is listened to because he's the man and would be the only one to kind of be the victim of an affair rather than the other way around, which is usually the case, which is bad. So now I want to talk a little bit about the the director and the writer of this film. So the film is written by Liu Zhenyun, who actually wrote the book, I Did Not Kill My Husband, in 2012. So he has worked with our director, Fen Jiaogang, now two times with their first film being many years ago. But Fen Jiaogang is a very interesting man and quite the first example of how Chinese art and government kind of doesn't really have any difference in a way that they're both kind of involved as each other whereas I feel like maybe in some other places for example I think like an independent film being made in America for example probably has very little to do with the government or involvement with governmental bodies I talked a lot about this in an episode that I did a few weeks ago which was on the history of Chinese cinema uh, where I sort of told as how China changed as a country over the past 100 years the film industry changed many, many times, ending up what it was today. But Fen Jiaogang, our director, uh, is a director, screenwriter, actor, producer, and politician. He is well known in China and is highly and is kind of revered as this very successful commercial filmmaker whose comedy films consistently do well at the box office. Although in the last kind of some years, uh, he's broken out of that mold by making some drama and period films. And he was a member of the 12th National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. So he is very, uh, he's involved in the Communist Party for sure. He and Fan Bingbing won several awards for this film. Uh, and he's won a lot of, uh, basically like the Chinese Oscars. He is a, a repeat winner at these and this film was selected at TIFF as the special presentation uh, section so this was an award uh, for best achievement in directing that he won at TIFF. So as I mentioned very briefly earlier this film incorporates two different aspect ratios so I just want to talk a little bit about how this changes and basically what it is and how it's used in film. So it refers to when a screen's aspect ratio, which is basically just how the screen looks, 
how wide it is or how skinny or circular it is, is changing to indicate a shift between areas or realms to provide an artistic feel to the story or emphasize the intensity of a situation. The switch can be done either by a frame dynamically moving to fill the screen, which is done in the series Homecoming, so you should watch it because it's super cool, or by a quick cut to another aspect ratio. Transitions that happen between installments can signal that a work has started in analog television's 4-3 ratio and has been adapted to HGTV's 16-9. It was common for pan and scan home video releases of some older movies to have parts in widescreen that would lose too much of the picture when cropped, most often the credit sequences, while the rest of the movie would be shown in pan and scan. This can be used to, uh, to signal transitions between errors, as I mentioned, and different aspect ratios were common for different areas, for example. So it's a way to sort of almost contextualize something if you're talking about the past. I could be very wrong about this and I could very easily look it up, but the movie Mank, which is talking about this uh, very famous filmmaker uh, on Netflix is a black and white film. And I think that that is filmed in sort of this square aspect ratio because that was very typical of the time. Um, and also shifting uh, aspect ratio can, can be used, but also changing color. For example, we have the Wizard of Oz, for example, that begins in complete sepia tone and shifts into this wonderful technicolor, um, as a, as a device of stating how beautiful the land of Oz is and how magical it is compared to the boring, boring real world. Um, and my, like I said, Madame Bovary incorporates a lot of these color and aspect ratio to discuss the isolation that the main character feels throughout her crusade and also just how I, th I like to think it's how power is changed or or not changed but rather reflected through where she is like living in the countryside it's just it's nature it's countryside but then when she's in Beijing you kind of feel this more you feel the authority through the color almost because it's this regal red and gold colors that are kind of jumping out at you the whole time that she's there so you get that feeling for sure so now i wanted to talk a little bit about the main actress fan bingbing because she is a very interesting person and very very cool so fan bingbing is a chinese actress from 2013 to 2017, she was included as the highest paid celebrity in Forbes China Celebrity 100 list after ranking in the top 10 every year since 2006. She appeared on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in 2017. Her early works was in East Asian cinema and television, appearing in a drama series, My Fair Princess, which was kind of the jumpstart to her career. Her breakthrough came in the film Cell Phone, which was China's highest grossing film of the year. And she's went on to star in several Chinese films um, and yeah, winning awards, doing very well in Asia. And in her foreign film roles, she's also been a part of some very big, she was in X-Men, for example. Uh, she was in the French film Stretch and the Korean film My Way. So she's just been building this career and having this huge rise to prominence over the last few years and becoming kind of like China's biggest star. So a lot of the information that I got about Fan Bingbing is from this Vanity Fair article 
which is what we're going to come to talk about now. So the title of this is The Big Error Was That She Was Caught, The Untold Story Behind the Mysterious Disappearance of Fan Bingbing, The World's Biggest Movie Star. And this is written by Mei Jung. It's Vanity Fair. It was published in 2019. So we know nowadays Fan Bingbing mostly stays at home, sending messages on WeChat, which is the Chinese WhatsApp. She's working on her English, receiving guests, doing charity work to wash away her sins and otherwise trying to stay positive. Since before the last the events of 2019, when she abruptly disappeared from the public view for three months, she was busy being China's most famous actress, which is to say the most famous actress in the world because of the size and money that is in the Chinese film industry. So I'm going to be taking a lot from this article. So if you want to read it, I definitely recommend it because it's really well written. So Fan Bingbing is China's highest paid female star with a net worth of almost $100 million. She has well over 60 million followers on Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter. And that rivals the total membership of the Communist Party crazy. Among her fans, her classical melon seed face, widely viewed in China as a platonic ideal of beauty, has inspired countless acts of copycat surgery. She's often described as bai fume, a phrase meaning pale-skinned, rich, and beautiful. The rules of China's beauty are rigid and she follows them, says Elijah Whaley, a market researcher who specializes in China. She has been the face of Adidas, Louis Vuitton, and Moe, selling everything from lipstick to diamonds. They say that you can't take a good selfie with her because she will suck all the beauty away. Her fame caught the attention of the Western Hollywood. As I mentioned, she was in X-Men, but she was also in Iron Man. And yeah, she was in this uh, new spy thriller, but I don't know what it is. But she's just like this incredible, she's a very good actress and she's always like, striving to be a great example to young women and and girls in China, kind of proving that you can be this kind of like all-encompassing good entity. However, the trouble began on May 28th, 2018, when Fan was flying to LA with her retinue, uh, including a friend who reportedly got work done to look like her. There's a little detail that they included. On Weibo, a famed TV host named Q Youngyun posted two version of Fan's contract on the upcoming film called Cellphone 2. One put her salary at 7.8 million and the other at 1.5 million. And the implication was absolutely clear. She had fraudulently declared the smallest sum to the Chinese tax authorities to avoid paying tax on the rest. The contracts were redacted in parts, but you could see, still see the kind of faint outline of the famous Fan name. At first, no one thought anything of it. For for example, everyone knew that Kui, who was a household name in China, had an ongoing feud with the makers of Cellphone 2, which was a sequel to Cellphone, which was her breakout role and the highest grossing film of 2003. And uh, she also looks a lot like Kui, so apparently that's a reason of their beef. And besides, the hiss of gossip always trails stars like Fan. She's obviously this famous. If you were to believe the Hong Kong tabloids, Fan's brother Cheng Cheng is actually her illegitimate son. They're 19 years apart. Fan was said to have gotten her upper lip surgically enhanced, her chin shaved, fat removed from her thighs. She was dating a rich guy. No, she was dating the other rich guy. In fact, there are a set price for a night with her 2 million won or $300,000. It's said 
it says so in a booklet that supposedly lists the going rates of all a-list actresses so huge rumor mills around her all the time so it's like hard to pick the truth out of what is actually going on so there was every reason to think that this information or this scandal would just come and go like any other celebrity gossip but 12 hours later when she landed in lax it seemed like the world had turned against her so she was born after the death of mao zendong and has lived her entire life governed by the go-go brand of capitalism introduced by its successor Deng Xiaoping. At 37, she belongs to the first generation that has been allowed to amass private wealth under the informal slogan, let some people get rich first. Still, with many Chinese earning pre-reform salaries of less than 10,000 a year, fans were shocked to learn how much fan could command only for four days of work. Most people were astonished, says Ming Bei who produced the fan vehicle Sophie's Revenge. People knew she made money, but they didn't know that she made that much money. And even worse, Fan had tried to shrink her civic duty by trying to keep most of her morally suspect gains for herself. Her production company immediately issued a statement denying the charges and informing Kui that they had retained the services of a Beijing law firm. Kui apologized to Fan and retracted the accusation. By then, it was already a national scandal. A week later, on June 4th, the central tax authorities deputized the local tax bureau in Jiangsu, the coastal province where Fang's company was registered, to launch an investigation. Shares of the company associated with Fan plunged to 10%, the maximum daily limit on the Chinese stock market. Three days later, Chinese censors banned all stories on the internet about taxes, films, and Fan Bingbing. The movie industry at large also fell under scrutiny. On June 27th, five governmental agencies, including film and tax authorities, issued a joint directive capping salaries for on-screen talent at 40% of the movie's total production budget. Individual stars, meanwhile, could not be allowed to earn more than 70% of the production's total wage for actors. The notice chastised the industry for distorting social values and encouraging the growing tendency towards money worship through blind chasing of stars. At first, Van Bimu tried to maintain her normal routine. She attended a Celine Dion concert, made a trip to Tibet for charity, and visited a children's hospital in Shanghai. Then, in the first week of July, she cancelled a meeting with a production company, informing them that she had been placed under house arrest. One night, amid the scandal, Fan went out for dinner with her best friend, the director Li uh, Yu. As they were driving home, Li recalled Fan reached for her hand and held it tightly. Li was surprised. Fan had never done anything like this before. Through their four movies and 12 years of friendship, she'd never reached out silently and held her hand in complete remission. Fan didn't say anything, but she herself didn't know what lay ahead. For two days later, Fan Bingbing, the most famous woman in China, vanished. It is hard to convey Fan Bingbing's appeal because there are no other star in Hollywood quite like her. She combines the glamour of Nicole Kidman the sunniness of Julia Roberts, the pluck of Jennifer Lawrence, and the box office draw of Sandra Bullock. In Beijing, she is the literal girl next door. Nearly everyone that the writer of this article met claimed to be her neighbour. A lawyer told her that her house was next to his. A gated community produced by Razor Wire, an actor said that he saw a black SUV parked in front of his apartment building, so the rumours just went and went. She was raised in the port city of Yantai, overlooking the Korean Bay. Her grandfather was general 
in the Naval Air Force. Her grandmother gave the Chinese character Bing or Ice to honor their family's tie to the sea. She grew up watching her father, a pop singer, perform at regional competitions. Her mother was a dancer and an actress. Both were party committee members and served as cadres in the cultural division of the local port authority. When fans middle school teachers suggested she take up music, they bought a piano and a flute. The family was poor and young fan knew this. She was in a car crash at the age of first, at the age of 14 and the first thing that she did was protect the flute, which she still has today. She spent the next three months of this uh, after the car crash in a hospital where she watched the Taiwanese drama about Wu Zetian, a consort who rose to become empress during the Tang Dynasty. Empress Wu gave Fan the dream of becoming an actress, and 20 years later she would produce and star in a TV sh- series about Wu. She ended up performing art school in Shanghai where she was the youngest of 40 in her class, sharing a tiny room with seven other students who struggled to get by on their monthly allowance of only $60, and on rough days, she sustained herself in a single meal bun, a single meat bun, or a bowl of beef noodle soup. Through a school play, she met a producer who cast her as a chambermaid in an 18th century costume drama, My Fair Princess, in 1998. When she was 16, the show became a cultural ph- phenomenon and cap- cap- catapulted her to stardom. Because Fan has been China's sweetheart for two decades now, younger fans feel as though they have grown up alongside her. A sort of Emma Watson for Chinese millennials. A Chinese language student told the author that she learned Mandarin by watching Fan in My Fair Princess, and another told her that the photo of crane, the photo of a crane pattern dress she had ordered on Taobobo, the Chinese version of eBay, was a knockoff of what Fan wore, uh, wore to con. Nearly all the people that the author spoke to had had worked with fan english teachers dialogue coaches designers lawyers executives producers directors actors told her that she was kind and impossible to hate she so much cares about the people working for her and treats them really well says fong lee who has produced several of fans films not many actresses are like fan bingbing she is so strong spiritually she can take a lot of pressure and still smile daniel jr firth who taught english to chinese actors called fan ultra kind and pleasant even though she was always surrounded by people who felt were more important than he was, Firth said Fan made sure he never got that sense of being neglected or put to the side, which is rare in a society that is so hierarchical. Once she called him up to say she had front row tickets to the National Theatre, would you like to come? And afterwards, he uh, she offered to drive him home. There was no stunt about it, he said. It was just a nice thing that she did for him. She is also, by all accounts, a very hard worker. She runs her own acting school, production company, cosmetics line, sleeping only four hours at night. Quay, the producer, recalled a rock climbing sequence fan shot for Sophie's revenge. She showed up with a fever, and even though the producer offered to reschedule, she said no, and that she would keep going. She was okay to climb. She said, but that they would have to dub her voice because she was uh, dub her voice because she was too ill to speak. And that they worked through the night. In 2015, a reporter asked Fan whether she was going to followed the customer marry rich i am not going to marry rich she responded i am rich which slay her brashness and her nickname fun akin to uh mustafan a title usually revered for men she is like a strong man inside said fong the producer but outside she is like a pretty girl 
Fun's image as the country's kindest, hardest working actress only made her sudden disappearance that more surprising and terrifying to the Chinese industry of film. In the month after, in the month after she was engulfed in scandal, shares in publicly listed movie companies fell by an average of 18%. So in the summer of 2018, fans stopped appearing in public and posting on social media. The entire world speculated about her whereabouts. On the 28th of August, Fan's fiancé was seen in a promotional video without his engagement ring, and the internet drew its own conclusions. Five days later, unverified tweets claimed that Fan, after seeking counsel from Jackie Chan, had landed in Los Angeles to request asylum. Jackie Chan quickly denied the rumor that the same day. Fan's birthday, September 16th, came and went. Mont Blanc dropped her as a brand ambassador, Soda Chopal and Swiss, an Australian vitamin company. And then... On October 3rd, she reappeared as suddenly as she had vanished. According to the South China Morning Post, she had been held under a form of detention known as residential surveillance at a holiday resort in a suburb of Jiangsu. The system was uh, instituted in 2012 under President Xi Jinping, making it legal for Chinese secret police to detain anyone without endangering uh, anyone charged with endangering state security or committing corruption and hold them for an undisclosed location for up to six months without access to lawyers or family members. Jesus Christ. Sources close to Fan told the author that she had been picked up by the plainclothes police. While under detention, she was forbidden to make public statements or use her phone. She wasn't given a pen or paper to write with, and she wasn't allowed privacy even to take showers. Fuck. That yeah, Jesus. After her release, Fan issued an obsequious apology on social media, saying she has endured an unprecedented amount of pain, and she felt ashamed and guilty for not setting a good example for society and industry. She went on, "Today, I'm facing enormous fears and in industries over the mistakes I've made. I have failed the country, society, support, and trust, and the love of my devoted fans. I offer my sincere apologies here once again. I beg everyone's forgiveness." She concluded with a reference to the Chinese popular song from the 1950s. Without the party and state, without the love of the people, there would be no Fan Bingbing. The same day, tax authorities reported Fan had declared only a third of her $4.4 million salary for airstrike in the Chinese action film starring Bruce Willis. The movie's release was cancelled and a warrant was issued for its one of its investiga- investors. Fan's longtime agent and former nightclub manager, Mu Xiaoguang, was found destroying the company books and was taken into custody. Fan was ordered to pay up or around 131 million US dollars in taxes and penalties, including 70 million from her own personal money. In fact, the producer told the author that Fan wound up paying actually only $2 million of her own money, which she raised by borrowing funds and selling off properties. And it could have been worse. Until 2009, uh, first-time tax offenders in China could be charged and criminal uh, with crimi- criminal liability, and until 2011, economic crimes such as tax evasion were punishable by death. The harsh treatment of China's biggest star sent a clear signal to everyone in the Chinese film industry. The boom days of the past were coming to an end. When the People's Republic of China was established in 1949, Actors and actresses were renamed film workers in an effort to cut capitalistic connections and remold them in s- into s- socialist citizens, according to Sabrina Xiongyu, a scholar of Chinese film. 
For decades, film workers received salaries on par with factory workers, and most movies were imported from Hollywood. By 2000, the Chinese film industry was producing fewer than 100 films a year, and only two dozen or so were shown in one of the country's 8,000 theaters. The rest were stored at the National Granary in climate-uncontrolled archives. After 2010, the government decided that there was big money in movies. State banks began to finance mergers and acquisitions, and China's studios went on buying on a buying bender. They snapped up the US theatre chain AMC, tried to purpose Dick, uh, purchase Dick Clark Productions, which produces the Golden Globes, and signed major financing deals with Sony Pictures, Universal, Fox, and Lionsgate. In total, the deals added up to $10 billion, heavily financed by state-backed banks. Today, China's film industry produces more than 800 films a year, and China will soon overtake the US as the world's largest film market. For the past four years, China has been building 25 new movie screens every day. In March 2018, President Xi established the National Supervision Commission, granting its sweeping power power to investigate corruption and tax evasion. Suspects can now be legally kidnapped, interrogated and held for as long as six months. That same month, he also gave the Central Publicity Department, which heads the propaganda efforts, the authority to regulate the film industry. Films that had passed the censors years ago have now been retroactively banned. The liminal space where you can get away with stuff, that's gone, said Michael Berry, a professor of contemporary Chinese culture at UCLA. Fans... Issue was not that she was evading taxes. The bigger error was that she was caught. So it's just like very intense story and, and a very... And I really encourage you to read the rest of the, that article because it's very well detailed. And I don't think that she has been working much since then due to this scandal. But also, I'm Not Madame Bovary is kind of a... It's, I would say, satirical dot comedy really kind of outlining the issues with a lot of Chinese laws at the time, some of which have been overturned now, but there is still basically this fear that everyone lives in of the government, which is just kind of directly controlling everything that they consume, which is, which is scary. And I think it's also, it's important not to write off countries like this it's important to understand why these things have happened in the episode that i did about the history of the chinese cinema i feel like i like i'll i can hold my hand up and say that prior to learning about this i would have just been like oh china is a bad country because of this this and this and maybe you know whilst i disagree on the idea of legal kidnapping by the government and interrogation and the amount of fear that I imagine a lot of business people deal with uh, the idea that they can just be put in prison for stepping one toe out of line I feel like I learned by learning about it it doesn't just seem so cut and dry and that it's a very complex issue and while I still don't agree I think there's definitely an it's important to understand cultures just because they're not the same as the West doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just different. And why is it different? And how is it different? It's important to understand because if you want to make any movement before judging, I think 
you need to learn. But yeah, very excited for people to hopefully come and see this film. It's uh, being shown the day all this episode is coming out the day after. So I hope that if you came, I hope you had a nice time. I hope you liked the film. Um, but yeah, now the film club is just uh, we're gearing up for Biff, which is which is going to be happening until the end of the month. So hope that people will come and check the great slew of films. I personally cannot wait to see Poor Things, and I cannot wait to see The Boy and the Heron, the new Miyazaki film. So that's going to be great. But I hope that people have enjoyed this episode. It's been very interesting to research, and I hope that you will want to go see this film because it's definitely something that I think everyone should experience because it's very magical for me. I think it's, it's yeah, it's great. But thank you very much for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed I've been Joel Lawrence, your host. This has been The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. This has been a Birkin Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbkaibern and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.